Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought-leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast. Rick Zula joins us today from New York. He is the founder and general partner of Equal Ventures, a firm focused on seed stage investments into companies bridging the digital divide, bringing digital transformation to the world's most impactful industries, including supply chain, energy, insurance, and commerce. Before launching Equal Ventures, he was an investment background spanning across the seed stage and tech PE spectrum, including Bowery Capital, Foundation Capital, LightBank, and LightView Capital. And Rick initially started his career as a strategy and operations consultant at Deloitte. Currently is on the board of 10 companies, including supply chain companies, SmartHop, Ghost, Leap Retail, and Movement, as well as others in the energy space, including David Energy and Odyssey. And some of his notable previous investments include Project 44, WorkRise, Expel, and ClearCover, all of which have been valued over a billion bucks. Rick, uh, way overdue is the understatement here, so we've got a ton of ground to cover. Welcome to the heavy hitters. Hey, you know me, I'm always late to the party, so I uh, appreciate you having me. Right on. Well, the party we get started here is the same way we always do. I gave a little snippet of your background, but give us a little more color commentary on Journey and you know why you jumped off to found Equal Ventures. Yeah. Uh, so when I was beginning my professional journey, very, very different time. Venture and private equity, much more opaque. Um, there weren't things like Crunchbase or podcasts like this to go figure out things. Like, yeah, uh, I had no re- real clue what the difference was between venture capital and private equity, but seemed like consulting or investment banking were the paths to get there. So I spent five years in consulting and working primarily in the energy space, but doing some things that, you know, around uh, like, you know, broader industrials and how uh, internet connected data, you know, was going to change that landscape and you know, had a lot of fun doing that, but made my way over to technology, private equity side. You know, uh, just before business school to get my kind of introduction to software companies, you know, quickly realized that I enjoyed consulting more than I did building LBO models and picked up an internship as I was getting my uh, MBA at Columbia Business School with first round capital. And, you know, at that point, working with a firm like that and seeing, you know, the dedication that they had to founders, it was pretty clear that uh, um, that's where I wanted to spend the rest of my career. So, you know, went through a few spouts at different venture firms and landed, you know, uh, with you in Chicago, you know, at a firm called LightBank. And, you know, really for me, you know, that was a deliberate choice not to go out to the Bay Area, you know, um, and focus on being an enterprise IT investor and, and really focusing on how I could go find the next Oracle. But, you know, how could I be in a place that had such tremendous uh, industry influence that I felt that my background in consulting private equity and being a guy who lived in D.C., New York and all these other you know places outside of the Bay Area, um, how that could help me uh, engage in this kind of digital transformation effort. Uh, of getting technology into a bunch of these other industries. And I would say vertical software probably wasn't as um, in vogue uh, back then as it was now. Companies like Viva hadn't gone public yet. And, you know, it's been fascinating to watch that, you know, really evolve over the last couple of years. But I was fortunate to spend a couple of years with the team from LightBank and see, you know, uh, Brad and Eric build some incredible companies of their own with uptake and Tempest and, you know, get the chance to either angel invest or invest via the fund and some, you know, great companies that you mentioned earlier, but really kind of hone this thesis of how to invest in companies, you know, outside the Valley that impact industry rather than just engineers. And, you know, really came to this fundamental conclusion that, you know, if you're a founder building the next version of, you know, Datadog, 
you could walk into any single venture firm in the Valley and you probably could speak to someone who had built a pre previous iteration of that product or something in that space, or at very least invested at something in that category. They knew your customers, they knew a ton of recruits, they knew your M&A buyers. Uh, there's a lot of value that they could add to that conversation. They could be a meaningful advisor. They had what we would say is a prepared mind in, in, in that space for those type of companies. But you know, as I was looking at companies in energy and insurance and supply chain, all these things that you know really were you know <clears throat> very much vital to the economy in Chicago and vital to our, our economy, you know, broadly both locally, uh, you know, here in, domestically in the U.S. and, and globally. You know, it, it was a very different experience. It was kind of the first 40 minutes of every conversation being a 101, you know, on how that market operated and they didn't understand your customers and, you know, the recruits that they would try to give you didn't really make sense. And they certainly didn't understand your M&A buyers. And there was this kind of general, you know, attitude towards like, well, this is how we do it in Silicon Valley and this is the right way. And, you know, uh, I think that doesn't you know, necessarily work when you're, you know, all of a sudden considering not just bits, but atoms and electrons and other things, you know, with that. So, you know, really, you know, I felt that there was this opportunity just to provide the same product to founders in this big technology deployment wave of how can technology, you know, start contributing to and transforming these industries and giving those founders the very same product that, you know, folks who are building enterprise IT companies had already come to know and love. Uh, and that's really what gave us kind of the big nudge and push to, to start Equal Ventures a little while back ago. So, you know, that was in 2019 when we you know, first established the firm. We did our first closeover fund in 2020 and been off the races since. Right on. Well, we're going to talk a lot about going deep in markets and sector experience, like you mentioned. So, NetNet, uh, -Net, I'm just really glad you dropped the LBO model because it's been fun going on the venture journey with you and, and now both launching shops. So, well, so to the point of the nudge to start Equal Ventures, uh, give our listeners a little bit more of those kind of high level data points about Equal Ventures generally in the fund mandate, just to scope them in if they think about reaching out. Yeah. So, um, you know, can't comment on, you know, our, our subsequent funds, but, you know, we're well capitalized is what I can say. Our first fund was a $55 million vehicle really focused on, you know, being the lead investor in seed rounds. And for us, you know, that's where it felt like there was a gap. As I looked at, you know, some of the, the you know, most successful companies I had backed, it was that first round was the toughest because, you know, folks uh, really struggle to get conviction in something when they don't understand the market. When there's a ton of data behind that, and now you, you, know, you look at a company like Project 44, and it's pretty easy to underwrite given the, the immense amount of traction and performance of that company. And, you know, Jet's been, you know, an incredible leader, you know, along the way, as well as Jason and the rest of the team. You know, but um, that was a much less consensus, you know, opportunity at the at those early stages. Um, and for us, we really wanted to play in that gap of, of how could we be the big check, the high conviction check, you know, so every single company we did in fund one, we own north of 10% of, you know, largely, you know, every single company we do, we, we join the board uh, and we run an incredibly concentrated portfolio. So, you know, uh, our first fund's only 15 companies. Uh, and that means that we're doing just a handful of investments per year, you know, frankly, operating much more like a series A firm than what I think, you know, most folks would see as a seed, you know, firm. Um, but doing that at, you know, roughly half of what we invested in was pre-revenue or pre-product when we invested in it. So we'll go insanely early and we like to be that kind of high conviction investor. And, you know, moving forward, our check sizes are going to kind of be in that two to $3 million range. Historically, we've never paid north of 20 million post for a company. So, you know, we like to think this is a partnership, um, you know, and, and coming in early to those companies, helping them be part of building. We're incubating a company in our office right now, which is, you know, uh, one that we're really excited about. Uh, and we love being part of that 
day zero, day one, you know, part of the journey, as well as folks who are, you know, getting ready to scale. Um, but hopefully that gives a little context on how we operate as a firm. Yeah, I think it's great scoping for everyone. So I, I want to kick off the discussion. Um, as a thesis-driven firm like Equal Ventures, you you go really deep in your research to have, as you call, a prepared mind. And, and around five key sectors you recently outlined in your team's post titled 2023 Research Point of View, and I'll definitely link this in the show notes. Um, so aligned to the topic of this podcast, digital industrial, how we ever wanted to define it, I want to go into that sector you guys define supply chain. And, you know, you and I have been investing and discussing approaches in this sector for almost a decade now, dating back to our days in the supply chain mecca of Chicago. So, right, shout out to the P44s and the Forkites and the ship bobs and the rest that are all out there. Uh, so let's do a then and now, what we've learned about this ecosystem over that time. And so first, um, you know, generally, what has it been like to watch a new venture category form into what is now multiple unicorns over the last decade? You know, are there any key aspects you saw that it took to scale that supply chain sector to where it is? And then I'd, I'd love to do a little bit of a look ahead. Where do you see the next decade ahead for this supply chain in innovation sector you guys define? Yeah, I think supply chain over the last decade has actually been like one of the most categorical Gartner hype cycle you know, demonstrations that you can imagine. Like this was a sector that seemed kind of like a little off the beaten path. Are there going to be massive companies here? Question, you know, back maybe five, six years ago when, you know, you and I were, you know, you know, playing in it, um, you know, uh, you know, poking around at things, maybe even longer than that now that I think about it. Uh, and then really COVID brought a lot of this to the forefront, right? Um, you know, all of a sudden supply chain was the hottest thing on the face of the planet. And, you know, these companies exploded in both interest and valuation. And then look, we're coming back to reality. We're in the midst of like a really tough rate cycle. Um, you know, valuations have come down, unit economics have been pressured, you know, and that's going to wipe out a lot of companies in, in, in these bases. And, you know, we think that creates, you know, what, you know, the Gartner, uh, you know, uh, uh, cycle, you know, creates for the next step, which is that plateau of productivity where, you know, we're cutting through the noise and really focusing on what are the most uh, transformative solutions that can get there. I think we're going to have a couple of companies that are creating real lasting, sustaining winners, you know, from that last phase and, and, and you know, uh, that, that that's great. I think there are going to be a lot of, you know, companies that, you know, weren't really tech companies, um, you know, that, that aren't going to make it to the other side of that, um, um, that were valued like tech companies, even though they were, you know, freight brokers or, you know, uh, uh, um, really just service companies. And, you know, I think that's largely a lot of that investment into those type of companies was driven by folks who didn't really understand the nuances of the supply chain business. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with those as those shake out. Um, but I do think as we look forward, a lot of lessons learned, a lot of um, um, both at the company level and investor level of where some of the spots and pockets are and um, how to go and actually build through these cycles is becoming a really, really important thing. So I think buyers have been elevated in their interest in this, like supply chain management uh, and transformation to a digital supply chain is more important now than ever before. Uh, you know, as people see the disruptions that those have created, you know, now it's up to, you know, the next generation of founders to go build on, uh, you know, some of the success and ashes of that first generation, uh, you know, to go and build the next, uh, you know, suite of companies that's going to be you know, transforming the supply chain. 
Yeah, I think you're right. You know, every chief supply chain officer I talk about, that adage that they're no longer just a cost center, they're a revenue generating function. Uh, and then all the all the infrastructure that's been laid, all the marketing dollars that have helped educate buyers in this ecosystem, I think the time is ripe now to build something, call it the 2.0 or however you want to define it. Um, and, and so, Rick, were there any of, you know, would you point out any of those sub themes from your research in this supply chain sector that, you know, you get most excited about? Yeah, I, I mean, for us, there's principally been two areas that we've spent a lot of time on and, and that's really like the freight ecosystem and this has been like a very personal passion for for me like you know having kind of you know come up in light bank and, and having echo global down the hall and you know being able to go and interact with that company as well as a lot of its stakeholders you know you just develop a much deeper appreciation for the freight ecosystem and you know how vital it is to the u.s economy and and, and frankly you know, how these drivers who, you know, have been the lifeblood and largest labor category in America, you know, uh, you know, have been left behind by technology and sometimes like, you know, uh, you know displaced and disrupted, you know, and uh, it really is important to me from a personal and, and financial level, you know, that we find ways to, to you know, enable those folks in, in a digital way. And I, I say that the drivers, I say that about freight brokers, you know, uh, we, we do that with, uh, you know, our company Smart Hop and Movement and, and providing a lot of free technology tools, you know, to hopefully improve the lives of those, those individuals and, and, and make them more uh, enterprise competitive with, with the larger, you know, players in those industries. You know, but you can see this with uh, the yellow bankruptcy that, you know, that's that's rumored to be happening right now. You know, these yep. are tough industries to operate in, and that's that, that's a major thing. I mean, you know, you know that, that company's been around for a long time, you know, and, you know, there's a need for better um, risk management data, uh, you know, solutions to help folks manage these things, but also solutions that can mirror to, you know, the realities of the market. So, you know, we'll continue to spend a lot of time in the freight ecosystem. That's been something that, you know, I've really enjoyed, you know, being, uh, you know, part of and, you know, uh, trying to find solutions that are going to help drivers and brokers and, and, and certainly such huge vital parts of our economy. But, you know, uh, I'd mm-hmm. say the other side of the angle that we spend a, a lot of time on is, is logistics. So commerce is one of our you know other categories and you know for us like we've never been very into things like headless commerce and the kind of the e-commerce wave you know we've done a lot of research you know speaking to kind of breadbasket retailers and you know looking at a lot of data and, and you know the reality is you know uh, the drivers of e-commerce may actually destroy more value than than what they create in terms of you know th- what's happening on returns and what's happening with you know amazon's expectations and you know letting customers and you know amazon is a retail company it's a supply chain company probably the best damn one that's ever you know existed but uh, the reality is you know all that creates an immense amount of pressure on the rest of the ecosystem to go figure out how to modern modernize its logistics infrastructure and I think there's a lot of really, really <clears throat> interesting opportunities there. Uh, and, you know, that's everything from reverse logistics, you know, re-commerce to, you know, wholesale and excess inventory considerations. Yeah, um, I mean, we're seeing, you know, we wrote a post in 2020. Uh, I don't think we published it till we till we invested in, in the company, but like, basically doing a tremendous amount of resource or research, you know, looking at the impact of what, uh, you know, changes in demand planning and uh, um, uh, uh, returns we're going to have on on inventory levels in the retail market. And, you know, what had structurally been about $300 billion of excess retail generated pre- or excess inventory generated a year, um, you know, we we had a hypothesis that number could double. 
uh, ended up uh, actually quadrupling. And last year, there was about $1.2 trillion of excess inventory in the market. You know, that's bigger than the GDP of most countries. Um, and, you know, the reality is that's not you know, nearly a trillion dollars of excess economic activity activity that needs to figure out where to go. There's environmental implications. There's economic implications of that. There's certainly massive, massive supply chain you know, implications of that. And we were fortunate to, you know, be a day zero investor in a company called Ghost that's squarely in that space, but certainly an area that we continue to look through of how can we help modernize logistics infrastructure to help people compete in the age of Amazon um, and make sure that we can squeeze as much profit out of um, legacy commerce and uh, commerce and supply chains, uh, you know, together. And I think that's going to be an area of, there's going to be a lot of interesting things in the years to come. Yeah, well, right on. Two great trends, to say the least. And, you know, back to the freight comment, uh, I think this is a part of why a prepared mind really is important, uh, because I think, you know, Venture maybe um, thought about going around the brokers and the drivers at some point during the journey. And as you mentioned, how about we actually enable and help the brokers and drivers? Because, uh, you know, Rick, I think it, I found it amazing. Me and you would go walk the halls with Doug Wagner and, and see what Echo's actual floor looks like. There are still a lot of humans involved and a lot of humans that are doing very important roles uh, that software can help them, but um, going around them didn't seem to work out so well. So uh, I agree. I, I think there's still a ton of opportunity now as everyone's learned these lessons. So uh, we'll be yeah, fun to watch. I, mean, I, I think prepare my part of it is is having a lot of research, but a part of it is having open ears. Like, And, and I yep. think one of the things that like, you know, I, I, I know you have a deep appreciation for this and, and, you know, maybe this is coming from the, my consulting background was just, you know, really being able to have an empathetic ear to customers, you know, uh, from very, very different points of view, you know, hopping in a cab with a driver and actually understand what's going on there. You know, you know, speaking one-on-one with, with, with a freight broker, you know, and understanding what happens, you know, with them and understanding the nuance of this where, you know, I spend a tremendous amount of my time you know, honestly, far more time with customers than I do with venture capitalists. You know, and I love that. Like, I love the fact that on a given day, I'm talking to people from all over the country, from different perspectives and influences. And like, and many times I'm the first venture capitalist that they've ever spoken to. Um, they don't, you know, always know exactly what I do. And you know, usually I'm just like, yeah, it's kind of like Shark Tank. But, uh, you know, the reality is I do find that to be such a uh, emotionally uplifting thing is, you know, being able to go and actually develop real relationships with, with customers that you can actually pull the thread be, because, you know, I think in a lot of these industries like, you know, the freight industries, there's a heavy distrust of technology. You know, they've been told that they're going to be disrupted by, you know, autonomous vehicles or, you know, you know, Uber freight or whatever it was over the course of the last couple of years. And, and that's really scary to people who like that's that's the job that they've done for 30 years. And it's the only job that they know. Um, and, you know, when in many ways that inhibits digital transformation, it, it keeps them you know, stuck in their ways and unwilling to to trust and, and lean in on technology. And I think, you know, one thing where we've really strived as a firm, you know, is to really make sure that we can develop authentic relationships with, you know, those folks who are on the front lines, you know, to be able to get a better sense of what is possible. And not right what's on. happening today, but what what is possible that if someone trusts you and says, all right, like, hey, I understand this isn't the way that things work today, but, you know, is this, you know, if we did this, 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 what if we gave you software for free? How would you think about that? Uh, and, you know, I think if that's the first phone call that you're doing that, they're, they're very suspicious, you know, about you because they've been scammed by a bunch of people, especially, you know, financial providers and so forth. You know, but if you can develop trust around that 
and really have that empathy with, with customers, you know, I think they see what's possible and they start to learn. And, and, and our hope is that that's kind of one of the levers that can usher in digital transformation, not just us having our nose in books, you know, and research reports and speaking to research analysts, but, you know, being able to see what's possible that's not currently possible today, you know, um, but via those conversations with, with the folks on the front line. Yeah, won't be selling much without a bunch of trust and relationships built in in the supply chain sector. I think we could both confidently say that. Um, but let me push this here forward a little bit faster here. I want to go to another key sector you guys define as climate and uh, are actually hosting your inaugural, inaugural Equal Ventures Climate Capital Summit around this thesis in the fall. So bear with me here for a second as I set up the question. Climate tech, clean tech. ESG, sustainability, decarbonization, energy transition, et cetera, descriptors, I could keep going. They're all getting massive amounts of attention uh, and will equally have a massive impact on society, of course. That said, in my opinion, the definitions have seemed to really all just blur together into this big jumble. And I'm often asked, does legacy industry and or industrial supply chain innovation overlap at clean tech at all? And I'll, I'll then politely outline, well, yes, of course, uh, construction tech, removing construction waste, one of the largest ESG problems globally, logistics tech, optimizing trains, planes, automobiles, routing, matching, et cetera, so they travel less and emit less CO2. And then industry 4.0 tech, uh, thinking of advancing digital production and manufacturing capabilities, definitely is decreasing the carbon footprint and greenhouse gas emissions that come with our factory complex. So all squarely advanced in the mission of the broader environmental cause. So in my soapbox there, the question is twofold. How do you define climate tech, where it starts and stops? And, and then how do you tie all of these disparate descriptors and ecosystems together under a common thread of global environment good or however we want to define it? Yep. So uh, I'll take your question one level up and say, you know, climate tech, clean tech, ESG, sustainability. Yeah. In many ways, these things do blur together. And I think one of the you know uh, you know scary parts of society is that it, people could actually agree with the same thing, but if you called it climate tech rather than energy transition, they may get a, a front to it and vice versa. You know, yeah. so the reality is this all goes back to like we need to make sure that we're speaking the language of the customers and the stakeholders and, and, and the language that they want to hear. So, yeah, you know, I, I think in many cases there are folks who want to make a transition in energy, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it can be politically charged in, in some aspects. And, you know, uh, as much as I want to remove that, I want to make sure we're making progress. And as someone who's worked in the energy industry for, you know, now call it, you know, 16, 17 years, um, you know, and, and being a survivor of that first clean tech wave, you know, uh, I really think this is one of the most important, um, you know, societal challenges that we need to figure out, but also one of the biggest economic opportunities that we're going to have, you know, in terms of economic transformation and turnover that's going to happen during our lifetimes. Uh, if you have a bunch of folks who, you know, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars, not or trillions, you know, in some cases that need to economically change the entirety of their business, you know, for them to exist. And that's going to create a whole, you know, cast of new, new winners. You, you can look at a company like Nextera, for example, that's, you know, grown tremendously on the backs of, you know, deregulation and clean energy development since, you know, the, the clean tech wave and, you know, apply that to, you know, all these industries that you just mentioned. So, you know, I, I, I do think that we tend to think of climate tech in, in, in two ways. And, and one that's, you know, energy, which like, you know, I, I grew up in power utilities, working Department of Energy, working with, you know, a, a, a lot of companies in the power sector and, you know, both domestic and broad and you know we think about that very deep very deeply um, like we're not 
touching biotech or you know some of these other things that are frontier you know uh, energy development i really want to engage in digital transformation in the energy sector uh and you know we're doing that with companies like odyssey energy solutions we're doing that with companies like david energy our most recent incubation is squarely at that um, um and you know that that is something that digital transformation of of the energy industry is an incredibly exciting opportunity for us, you know, for really uh, a, a few reasons. One, like if you look at what happened during Cleantech 1.0, it was roughly 80 cents on the dollar, you know, were lost for investments into, you know, hard tech, material science, you know, things that we'd broadly categorize as frontier investment. Um, you know, uh, for digital investments, people actually made three times their money, which was actually, it that ended up beating uh, according to the pitchbook data, um, uh, what uh, what otherwise happened during those vintages? So you know, clean tech software actually performed really well. It was just you know, clean tech um, you know, hard frontier science performed you know extremely poorly. Um, despite that, we've seen venture capitalists pour roughly seventy percent of their dollars into frontier, not digital solutions. So we actually believe digital is incredibly underinvested as a category in this space, and that makes us excited. Secondly, you have this massive wave of like the largest. You know, if you look at the growth of distributed energy resources or basically internet connected energy devices, it actually outpaces and has a higher growth rate than the growth of users on the early days of the internet. And that is an extremely, extremely exciting thing. Uh, and this really dates back to, you know, my experience working on smart grid projects or, you know, industrial IoT, you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, even longer than that, longer than that, you know, we're starting to finally hit that moment where, you know, uh, there's firmware on every device and we can make these devices intelligent and actually make them useful uh, and moving from walled gardens to, to like actually a structural internet of energy. We think that is actually going to be one of the most exciting things that uh, even my wife who, you know, you know, she's a, 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 a managing director of real estate private equity fund, uh, uh, for their impact in energy and sustainability, um, you know, the, the legacy technology tooling that she has in place and she's as early of adopter of you know these technologies as there is out there most sophisticated users that, that you can imagine you know so much of this still happens over text phone for what are multi-million dollar decisions that um, you know the ability to actually access this information um, you know, it, it, and use it and, and get to full utility on it just re represents a tremendous opportunity for economic gain, but also efficiency environmental gains. And we think that's just like a complete win-win-win for everyone. You know, uh, no one is, it, you can't offend anyone by making money. Um, you know, the, the the second piece of this universe is, you know, the sustainable, you know, lens to it. And I think you highlighted a couple of things, like obviously buildings and construction tech, there's so buildings represent roughly 40% of of, uh, you know, emissions profile, and there's so much work they can do, you know, in, in that space and supply chain. We actually initially met Smart Hub, you know, via um, the, um, uh, uh, you know, chief sustainability officer of a Fortune 50, you know, company that was working with them, you know, and, and you know, it's it's a company squarely rooted in, yes, solving the problems of, you know, drivers and small fleets and, and enabling them to, you know, uh, transform their business operations in, the, in a digital age, you know, but it also reduces the amount of backhaul or deadhaul, you know, by roughly 50%. Um, you know, drivers on our platform make more money, fact. Um, but on top of that, uh, they drive with a lot less empty miles and that's less miles on the road, creating less pollution. And there's certainly sustainability impact. You know, we look at a company like ghost, you know, and the apparel industry has become one of the most, 
you know, um, you know, largest contributors to, you know, emissions and waste over the last 10 years. And that's largely on the back of companies like, you know, Zara and H&M and Sheen and Fast Fashion. You know, these are, you know, high chemical, um, uh, you know, apparel items also massive, you know, uh, emissions produced and um, uh, producing the, uh, you know, making sure that the, these goods get to consumers and are returned, ultimately returned at a very high rate, you know, all that has a tremendous environmental impact. And if we can find ways to solve that more sustainably, you know, that's uh, another great way to make money, you know, while also, you know, making sure that we're doing something in a more sustainable way. So, you know, in general, you know, we're bifurcating our efforts into that. And we do think that there's a sta sustainability or climate lens, you know, across each one of our sectors, you know, we're looking at sustainable commerce with re-commerce, we're looking at sustainable supply chain with companies like, you know, SmartOp, we're looking at um, sustainable or climate-related insurance initiatives, you know, certainly a tremendous amount of uh, thinking that needs to happen over there as, um, you know, asset owners need to completely rethink, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the actuary results of what they've had over the last couple of decades, given everything that's happening in the environment, whether it's wildfires or floods or, you know, extreme heat. But yeah, also very squarely focused on energy. So it gives you the chance to really go extremely deep vertically into something like the power and utility sector, which is, you know, the sector that I came up in, you know, as well as to think more broadly, you know, across how, you know, climate can be this, you know, um, more pervasive theme across everything that we do. And look, we think both of those are very investable trends. Yeah, well, all of those are great trends. And I think it helps just further make the point here it, we're all rowing the boat in the same direction, trying to make an impact sustainable, however you want to define it. Everyone get off your marketing fiefdoms. And I, I, Rick, I hope at your conference, y'all, maybe y'all just have a panel about semantics of verbiage and all that and, and just end it once and for all. But uh, there'll be no final answer here, but uh, I appreciate everything that you put out there. And, and I do want to make sure we get to one last question here. So I'm going to push this forward again. I want to talk about what it means to be an emerging manager today. And so late last year, you guys hosted uh, yet another conference, uh, the first Emerging Manager Conference. It was home run. It was an incredible gathering of both new and established emerging managers, uh, LPs who actually understood the emerging manager opportunity, and even some of the OG VCs who looked back on when they first entered venture and were maybe thought of as an emerging manager. So the question, first, how do you like to define what actually is an emerging manager at this point in the cycle? And then with that setup, let's hear your take on whether emerging managers need to be specialist versus generalist, or does that even matter? You know, basically, I just want to give some words of advice to those out there who are either currently building a new VC firm or thinking about launching one. Yeah, yeah. As you know, um, the Emerging Manager Circle, which is a group of north of 500 GPs who have founded funds, it's been something really personally vital to me, especially during times like COVID, starting this fund just before COVID, uh, just having a support network in place of peers who are going through the same thing. You know, it's an amazing you know, resource, Rick, truly. Yeah, I know you're cool. humble about it, but it, well done on every front. I appreciate that. It's it's definitely been you know uh, I I've benefited from it a lot more than 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 I've given and and that's you know just having peers like yourself who you know I can rely and trust on as well as you know go go through and all the ups and downs like we're we're on as as much of a roller coaster as there is out there you know uh you know in this game and and, and with that. 
you know, having peers that are going through the same thing, uh, you know, uh, boom and bust economics is, is really, really helpful to me and been a great source of camaraderie. And I think for me, like emerging managers is really like what you choose to define it for yourself. Like Fred Wilson, who was one of our speakers, you know, uh, the, one of the founding partners of Union Square Ventures, he'd say that he's still an emerging manager because he's never done learning. And, you know, even though, you know, his he's tail end of his career and obviously one of the most impressive investing careers ever. Like he was a founder of that firm. He had to go through the same exact things that you and I are going through as we build our institutions today. And, you know, I think that's actually like the real kinship of it all that you can talk to these folks who are OGs and say, man, I remember when I had to go raise that first fund and how much, uh, you know, how hard it was. And, you know, we didn't know whether that phone was going to go work out. And I do find that there's real permanence on that. Like, you know, it, there's never been a time where it's like, you know, absent maybe the last couple of years, you know, where it's been easy to start an investment firm from the ground up. And, and, you know, I just find so much benefit from learning from the folks who have done it before, who have gone through that moment where, you know, they're speaking with their spouse about, hey, like, you know, we're betting 99% of our net worth on this, this. And like, if it doesn't work out, I don't know what's going to happen, but like, are you ready to go on that journey with me? And, you know, Lord knows me and my wife, you know, had to figure out that, that journey. We had our first kid, you know, the same month that we did first close on our phone. You know, and that was terrifying. Like, you know, the, you know, a week later, I was sleeping on a cot at, you know, at a hostel, you know, as we were going to go pitch, you know, an institutional LP to anchor our fund. And, you know, the God that that worked out. But, you know, there were definitely, you know, it was betting all on the line. So, you know, I, a little bit, I, a little bit different than our Chicago days without kids. I, I know that for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you know that, uh, you know, back, back then I had a paycheck. You know, uh, <laughs> but uh, when you're betting all on yourself, then I, I, I do think that's the thing is like, you know, that 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 experience of being a founder uh, where, you know, um, VCs, you know, very often were painted with this brush as, you know, elitist and, and very much a, a lot of bad behavior exists in our industry that that rightfully earns that brush. Um, but I do think, you know, those folks who have gone through that, like, hey, I'm not going to take it, you know, salary for two years. Like, I'm going to go bet it all. Like, I'm going to go sleep on a cot, you know, in a hostel to go get this fund done. You know, I know so many people in our group have had to go through that. And I do like to think that, you know, yes, it's great for us to have empathy with each other. But I, I am also very hopeful that that creates, you know, greater empathy that we have for the entrepreneurs that we work with. And, you know, hopeful that uh, the broader ecosystem, you know, you know, gets a glimpse of that, that they can see that, you know, we We've had to go through our own struggles that there wasn't a silver spoon, you know, uh, you know, put in our mouth in this. And, you know, I do think that creates a really, really interesting opportunity for, um, you know, the venture ecosystem as a whole. Um, you know, so I want to make that definition broad, but we really, really, really center it around like, are you the person who had to put it all on the line? You know, are you one of those folks who had to bet everything, you know, just the way that the founders be back, you know, to, to, you know, bet on yourself. And that's really an emerging manager, whether you've been doing one year, you know, whether you've been doing 20 years, whether you're managing 10 million or 10 billion. Gotcha. And Rick, so hit on that whole sector focused specialist versus generalist, whatever you want to define, or is it even necessary? There's no one right answer for sure. In look, my opinion. Look, I think there are a lot of different ways to make money. Uh, and, you know, and produce returns for investors. Like, I, I love the way that we do it. I can't imagine doing a, doing our model any different way. Uh, and we modeled our firm very much after firms like Union Square Ventures and Emergence and IA. Like, you know, um, you know that high concentration, high conviction, thesis-driven, you know, type of capital. And that's because that's like that's the only way that I felt I could win. I see people who, you know, are complete generalists. I see pe people who are extreme specialists. I see folks who do 50 deals a year and i've seen people who do too and and all of them can work i i, I think it's really just 
making sure you're core to yourself and saying, how do I find competitive advantage? Like this is a ruthlessly competitive ecosystem. And I think one of the things that being at a venture firm in Chicago and, you know, working for guys like Brad and Eric, you know, and asking, okay, how's this enterprise IT company from the Valley making its way to us in Chicago, you know, and past all those other great venture firms there. It's just a really healthy respect for the competition. You know, that like, that's one of the reasons why I became such a thesis driven investor that I wanted to go and create my own islands and say like, okay, when it comes to seasonal stage supply chain and freight like i'm going to be one of the guys that sees this deal and i can go and add a ton of value to this company and so forth and you know, that's the reason why we are so maniacally focused on what we invest in because frankly like you know an absent of capability we came from a place that like you know i wasn't going to compete with sequoia you know day one you know you know on that and uh, you know for the for those incredible companies whether it was a series b enterprise it company and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to focus on playing my own game so you know i say uh, you know if you're an emerging manager you know don't worry about trying to be sequoia you know i was texting with one of our lps about this i think so much of venture gets lost in these truisms of what made don valentine and you know sequoia successful of years we're not sequoia like you know I, we have you know a very high performing fund but we are not sequoia and we will never be sequoia and the more that i try to be sequoia the more likely i'm going to be fail and going to fail the the best thing i can do is to be the best Rick Zulo that I can be and the best equal venturers can be. And that's by finding what are the you know competitive pieces you know, that we can bring together that we can confidently when we look at an opportunity and say, look, we are one of the best venture firms on the planet you know, for this company, you know, uh, we have asymmetric information on this market opportunity. We have asymmetric value add to this company. And we think that this company has the chance to be a $10 billion company if we provide it with the right cultivation and resources. And I think every single manager should think that way of how can you stack your deck in, in, in your favor? Because otherwise, you know, this is way too hard of a game to be throwing darts at a, darts at a wall. Got to have a competitive edge, no doubt about it. And the founders at this point, they know if you're passionate about what they're building and it goes, it goes deeper than even just prepared mind. It, it'll be sniffed out pretty quick. So however you do it, just make sure your, your competitive edge is there and, you, and you're passionate about what they're doing. So let's do this, Rick. We got to jet through the last part here, but we do want to bring it back to those folks in the arena, the founders. So maybe any, uh, as they think about raising venture or approaching equal ventures, give them any, if there's a one key to success or one pitfall to avoid uh, in quick form here. Look, I think when you choose your first board member or first seed stage investor, that is most often one of the most pivotal decisions you will make in the life of your company. Um, I actually like really don't like this auctioning off process where like, you know, I don't do demo days. I don't do any of that anymore. Like I, I haven't taken a pitch in eight years and it's because I'm only meeting with companies that I like know that I can get ahead of that process, get to know a founding team, that it's an area that I'm deeply passionate about. And if founder chooses to make that a partnership, I think it's a winning partnership, you know, but I think over the last couple of years, we very much got locked into this kind of like, auctioning off to the higher bidder and i and i've seen so many companies that could have been great companies die because of that because they're ultimately you know choosing because of capital and interim valuation which you and i know interim valuations mean nothing other than what you're bragging you know you know about at a bar um you know to uh you know to actually make a 10-year journey with a board member i've seen incredible board members save companies and i've seen terrible board members ruin companies so i think especially at those early stages when you're thinking about who you're going to partner with as your lead seed investor as the first board member of your company you know make that a decision about is this person going to help me get to the other side of the mountain 
because if you get to that you know other side of that mountain together that's going to be one of the most important both financially and personally relationships you will ever have in your life it is easier to fire a co-founder it is easier to get divorced uh, than it is to get rid of a board member of your company so if you pick the wrong one you know that can be really 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 problematic if you pick the right one it'll be one of the most important relationships in your life over the next decade of what is hopefully one of the most lasting and impactful experiences in your life of building a generational company. And, you know, I, I really just, you know, implore founders to make sure that they're putting proper weight behind that decision of making sure that they're making the best long-term decision, not just the most immediate decision. Love it. It's both a, a great way to set up for success and avoid a pitfall in the future. So Knocked it out with both. All right. So final, we always love to do a little quick hitter here. Rapid fire Q&A. So if you're ready, let's jump in. Let's do it. Okay. Number one thing you're looking for when you're evaluating a founder within this ecosystem. Yeah. I, I think it's that mission to solve something beyond just the economics of the business its own. You know, it's folks who bring that passion to say like, this, you know, I, I think Emily from Odyssey Energy Solutions is like an incredible example of this, that like, you know, she would be completely content to make zero dollars you know, on this uh, uh, on the company if she solved the energy transition in emerging markets. And, you know, she is so extremely maniacal about it. She's dedicated every aspect of her life for the last 20 years on solving the energy transition in emerging markets, dating back to her Fulbright scholarship, doing rural electrification in India. You know, and when you see that intensity, that passion, that curiosity and desire to hunt, you know, that's the thing that's making her get up at five o'clock in the morning and work on things. And, you know, the thing that gets her through those roller coasters that we love that kind of, you know, a, a maniacal passion for that pain point, you know, um, you know, that, that, that gets them to the other side during those hard times. Nailed it. Uh, once one resource could be a book, podcast, blog, whatever you recommend to the audience to, uh, follow in the ecosystem. I mean, I think Competition Demystified by Bruce Greenwald was a book that truly changed my life. Yeah, um, that was really one of the first resources that helped bring things together and make me think not like, all right, let's look at an income statement in a moment in time, but how can you actually go create value as a business? I think it's probably the best business book ever written. It's required reading at a firm amongst a couple other books. You know, um, you know, we've adopted a lot of the frameworks to our own, but, you know, I've, I've never met anyone who read that book and wasn't blown away from it. You know, for those who don't know, Bruce was a professor at Columbia Business School, but also kind of like the sage to, you know, Warren Buffett. And, and there's rumored to be a handful of funds, you know, that really have in the venture space, despite this being a book written by a value investor, um, you know, have really leveraged the learnings in that book, you know, as a bedrock of their investment frameworks. And I just think it's with your business builder, founder, you know, or investor, um, you know, thinking about how you establish captivity over the market and, and really create competitive advantage for your company. It's just one of the best resources and best life, life lessons that you can have for building business. Awesome. Um, one person who might be on the podcast to help us build up this ecosystem. You know, for me, like, I love the sneaky OGs in this space. Like, you know, like, you know, um, you know, whether it's, you know, supply chain folks, like, 
you know, Jess Silver or Paul Loeb or Rob Estes, these folks that have seen cycle after cycle after cycle through this, like, you know, that aren't household names that you're going to see in the Wall Street Journal, but, you know, know every single person in the industry back and forward. And I just, you know, the, the conversations that, you know, and the knowledge and wisdom that those folks have is just, you know, absolutely immeasurable as, you know, and, and, and there's folks like that in every industry. Yeah. Folks like Silas Chow, you know, doing that in retail and the energy ecosystem. You know, we love a couple of folks like Michael Ruhlman who have, you know, started and sold more companies, you know, in that in, in that sector uh in the energy sector than you know most ever have um you know and, and to be honest i don't think enough people in the venture ecosystem you know reach out uh, to you know these type of folks and engage with them and, and really try to learn from them because they are truly you know they are the equivalent of the bill Gurley's and fred wilson's of those industries you know and the, the best in class ceos and business builders awesome and then finally rick best way for folks to reach out to you after the show yep so um I, whether it's called Twitter or X right now, you know, I'm still making that, 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 uh, you're, you're pretty, you know. you're pretty shy on Twitter. Last time I checked, right? Something yeah. Like yeah. You know me like, you know, uh, uh, you know, my introvert side, you know, uh, somehow gets washed away when, uh, when, when, when it's, uh, you know, come through at 144 characters, but yeah. So at Rick underscore Zulo, uh, you know, I'll publish a lot of our research there. Um, our, uh, honestly, our team is, uh, immensely thoughtful in putting out a lot of research that we do. You know, we've gradually started opening up, um, you know, the, the, the windows on what we do internally and that, it, you know, for folks who are following in supply chain or, you know, retail or, or, or climate, I really, encourage you to check out what we have on medium or um, uh, Substack uh, that will publish a lot of our research through those channels and, and we'll actually make our complete deep dives which are these kind of like 25 30 30 you know slide opportunities uh, of, or page slides on some of the opportunities we see in the market we make them publicly available and we'll try to put a lot of our research out there so you know either Twitter Substack or medium uh, we're not hiding from anybody and you know we always love to hear from uh, you know folks in the ecosystem no, it's absolutely great content. It's definitely building up the ecosystem. So, well, Rick, I, I think both of our shops are just getting started. It's going to be a fun journey ahead on the next decade. So appreciate you coming on. We can only pick a couple topics, but we'll do it again and, and so much more ground to cover. Thanks for jumping on the show. Thanks for having me and really, really love what you're doing here and look forward to it, you know, seeing it grow into even greater success in the years to come.